Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 40 and we have Darren Potter joining the show. Darren started betting professionally in 2008 and is focused on Victorian horse racing. Darren talks about money management, the skills required to be both a form analyst and a betting expert, whether you can be out of form when doing the form, track walking, and a myriad of other insightful betting topics. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Darren Potter. Today I'm joined by Darren Potter. Darren, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jake. It's a pleasure to be uh, on board. I've listened to most all of your um, podcasts. I really enjoy them, and uh, you've had some you know wide and varied guests on. And I would think for anyone that's uh, keen to um, uh, make a profit out of punting, that your podcast would be a great place for people to start. Much appreciated. I certainly agree, Darren. I'm I'm looking forward to chatting <laughs> to you as well. I'm. I was on your site having a look around uh, Darren Potter Assessments, and I saw you started professionally punting in 2008. What was the impetus, or was there a tipping point, I guess, pre-2008 that led you to become a, a full-time pro punter? Oh, well, I'd, um, I, I mean, I'd always been a uh, you know a very keen carnival punter, I suppose, and had an interest in racing from a young age. But um, in 2008, I sold a recruitment business that I'd run for about a decade. And, um, you know, it just gave me the opportunity to give it a try. I'd always um, wanted to um, try betting for a living and uh, professional punting, and it was just an opportunity to do it. And I thought, I'll give myself two years and see if I can make a profit. And I've made a profit every year since, thankfully, and I've never looked back. So was it a long time coming, and were you thinking about it for a while, or did you just sort of sell the business and thought, all right, what's next, let's give this a go? I could so, so vaguely remember, you know, being as young as eighteen, thinking, God, it'd be just, you know, I'd go to the races and you'd see people, you know, the bookmakers, and so just just be a wonderful thing to um, be able to make a living out of something that you that you enjoy so passionately. Um, when it actually become a realistic thought, I don't think, you know, it was probably around the time when I sold the business because, uh, you know, f- from the the mid nineties through to then, I was working in you know various corporate jobs and. That's what I was doing, so I didn't really, you know, I, I, the, the carnivals would come around and I'd take punting quite seriously, but um, the rest of the time I was just working. So, um, you know, when, obviously when I sold that business, an opportunity was there and I took it. So what was that year or the first year like? I know just from listening to some of the guests I've had on, there's so much that goes into being a full-time professional punter, whether it's sports betting, horse racing, whatever. What was the beginning like? Did you have a, I guess, a background knowledge about some of the different areas? Were there things you had no idea were coming down the line? Take us through, I guess, year one of being a pro punter. 
Okay, well, I, um, as I said before, I'd been betting at the carnivals fairly seriously for a number of years, and you know, with mixed, mixed success. Um, so I was only going to bet on horses, and I was, uh, you know, Sydney was I was living in Sydney at the time, and that was where I was doing the majority of my betting. So I decided to kick off in Sydney. So I decided I needed some um, additional professional help. So I, I'd, I'd spent, um, I probably first started doing my own markets in about '95. So I'd spent, you know. Over a decade, developing my skills at pricing horses, um, uh, and then about the time I decided to give it a go, I discovered a thing called the Punter Show. I think I'm, I'm sure that's I might have the, the timing slightly out, but anyway, I watched a whole bunch of episodes of um, the Punter Show, which was Dallas Baker, Mark Lamborn, and Glenn Pollock, and you know, Mark spoke to me in a way that. You know, made a lot of sense to the way I, I go about things. So I um, immediately, um, upon commencement, got Mark sets, and uh, was intrigued with the way he priced horses. So when I actually started betting for a living, um, from from the word go, I was actually weighting things probably eighty percent towards Mark's markets and twenty percent my own, and trying to back, you know, the um, the key runners in the races that I targeted and. Uh, that evolved over time, and you know, I, I, I continued to educate myself and improve my skills to the point where my own markets were more important to me than the outside help I was getting from people like Mark. So take us through that making your own markets process, and I guess the pricing aspect. Do you price everything to 100%? Do you have sort of categories where you might have, you know, one, two, three horses in in certain categories and things like that? What are some of the things you think about? Yeah, so I price every uh, race to 100%. Uh, I start with the favourite, then I work back from the favourite in, I think, in lengths and margins. And I, I because I'm uh, of that age, Jake, I think in the old imperial odds, and I use four rolls to the length, so four rolls of the old-fashioned board. Yeah. So if I mark if I mark the favourite um, six to four or two dollars fifty in for, for the younger viewers or listeners, and then I've got a length back to the next pick. I'll, it'll be four rolls. So it'll be um, two eighty, three dollars, three twenty, uh, three fifty. So I'll, I'll have the second pick three fifty, so, so to speak. So I'll, get, I'll continue back through, and um, then once I've put a price beside every horse's, every runner's name, I'll uh, just tweak it to get it to one hundred percent. So do you look at the marketplace before you do that, or you go in blind essentially, and you have no idea what the market has the favourite at? Yeah, definitely going blind. I don't care. I mean, I, and often I'll do races before there is a market. Um, sometimes the market's already up. It just depends on the, the timing of my week. But I always do it myself first and um, have the pro- have my prices for the f- four top picks, uh, what I would consider the key runners in the race, uh, before I go and look at the market. And then I'll um, when I do go and look at the market, if it's fairly close, I'll just leave the market alone. If there's a reasonable discrepancy between my prices and the market i'll look at how many bookmakers are up and what options i've got to start building a position on ones that i think might be overs early in the marketplace will you go back and reassess i guess your form analysis if you've marked something six to four and it's eight to one or how much of that sort of market influence comes into your price assessment uh that doesn't happen a lot often but um yeah where where there can be differences in horses that are on the fringe of the market, you know, I might have marked something ten dollars and the market's 
25 to 1 or longer or vice versa. And I'll, I'll have a second look at those horses. Usually with the favourite and the favourite runners in the market, it's unusual for there to be a big discrepancy. But, um, um, yeah, so I, I, if there's a, if, when there is a discrepancy, my instant position is to try and think why and then try and uh, identify whether it's me that's made an error or it's them what's most likely what are the likely thought processes behind that price and then go from there and is that obviously different on a tuesday or wednesday versus a saturday or a carnival time is it all a constant evaluation depending on you know how liquid those markets are if it's after 9am and all that sort of stuff yeah like i won't if, if i if i've done my market for a race let's just say it's for a saturday race and it's on a thursday and there's uh reasonable um or let's say significant difference between my market and the public market i won't let that worry me at all but if that if the market hasn't started to come in line with where the position i'm in by saturday morning i'll start to look for reasons why so but for the saturday races by sort of 10 o'clock on race day those markets are pretty solid yeah that makes sense that makes sense i want to get into a little bit more about form and a, a few other things before we do can we Switch over to money management, and I, I read a few things on your site. You'd mentioned the Kelly Criterion. What are, I guess, your main principles when we talk about overall money management and, I guess, preserving your bank to be doing this long term? Well, the whole principle of the Kelly stuff is just betting to where the, where the edge is and, and weighting your bets to, towards the edge. So I think the exact formula is the edge divided by the odds expressed as a percentage of your bank. So, I mean, that's just the way I think about or racing, if, if I don't know where the edge is, I'm not betting in that race. And is edge as simple as the market price versus how you've assessed it? Yes. So in the end, every bit of info, you know, I gather all sorts of information. You know, for, um, I, when I look at a race, the first thing I do is get the race in front of me in barrier draw order. I don't like looking at it any other way. I produce a speed map to start to get a feel for that race. Uh, I'll have my base ratings and what I expect out of those horses coming into this race i'll go and walk the track and get an idea of you know where the better positions are going to be on the on, on the course if there is any advantage and i'll all of those factors i'll try and bring together and express in in my assessed price so at the end of the day if i'm saying the favorites uh, two dollar fifty chance and the second picks a five dollar chance i'm saying that there's a sixty percent chance of those two horses winning the race and then if the market's saying it's fifty percent well then i've got an edge over the market in my view Yep, no, makes sense, makes sense. And what's it like in 2018 to be able to, I guess, consistently get whatever your bet sizing is for that individual bet or, or market or even race day? Is it easy enough to be able to bet consistently as you would like to or are there situations where you're, you're unable to do that? Oh, look, you have to work hard, but it's okay. You know what I mean? Like you can get, oh, you know, that the... Um volumes that i bet in it's manageable i I wonder sometimes the big teams i wonder if they i would think they rarely get the whole lot of their bet um set Uh, but i tend to get most of it and you you have to be prepared to to average your price out over the full extent of the market if i try and uh, i rarely try and take all of my position in one bet if i do that I, i just i create problems so um as long as you're prepared to average it out over the full full course of the market, and you're willing to be clever about it, and 
um, bet across the board with all the operators and that sort of thing, it's you know you can get it done. Okay, and are you ever going to tracks to bet with on-course bookmakers these days? No, rarely. It's a disadvantage, Jake. The, just the flow of information and uh, it's the way I work. I um, I review a lot of races and I review them extensively. And like the races, particularly that I'm betting on, I, I actually review them during the meeting. So as soon as they go across the line, I rewind the the, the footage and I watch it half a dozen or so times. And um, that, that's hard to do when you're on course. And um, so the the minor advantage you can get occasionally being on course these days with some of the um, uh, wingers in the, in the in the betting ring taking different positions, the, the the minor price advantage you might get doing that is outweighed by the other stuff. And um, clearly, with all the action happening online these days, you you need to be in a situation where you, uh, as much as you can, trust your uh, IT infrastructure. And when you're on course, that's out of your hands to an extent. Um, so the time, the few times I've gone, I've found it, uh, you know. A disadvantage is probably the best way to put it. Rethink the way you see sport. Every action or play can be represented by a series of numbers. When you analyse this data, patterns begin to emerge. If you follow these patterns and develop systems, you can play the game within the game. Betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. Okay, and so what can you be doing to monitor the online marketplace? Are there things you do, whether it's through you know dynamic odds or monitoring Betfair? Do you have a network of people you speak to? What are what are your approaches to being able to understand what's happening you know real time with the markets? Yeah, all of the above. So there's a network of people I talk to, particularly on race day. I'll, you know, I've got quite a few contacts that. You know, that get stable information and that sort of stuff, which I'll just take on board and some of it I'll react to and some of it I won't. Uh, obviously, I have dynamic odds up all the time and um, particularly on race day, I'll be paying very close attention to the Betfair trade. And once we get past sort of about midday on race day, a, a very large percentage of my bets from that time onwards go through Betfair. Okay, and why is that? Oh, just at that stage, the market's pretty settled and they're all just reacting to each other and um, the, the percentage is just slowly coming down and they're tending to follow Betfair. So if you can sort of be thinking ahead of the, the game as much as possible, you can pick things off at the top of the market on Betfair and um, just, you know, improve your position slightly. So once you've finalised your pricing and you sort of understand, I guess, the race as, as much as you can, do you do your bets change based on the market? I mean, if there's a $3 chance that gets out to six fifty. Are you likely to then back that because of the, I guess, perceived edge there? Or are you not touching it because of the market drift? How do you approach, uh, I guess, a, a marketplace that can fluctuate? Yeah, well, you could give me two different races with the exact same um, betting dynamics. You know, you might have a, a $3 out to $6.50 uh, favorite, and I'll react differently to both because of my understanding of the reasons it's happened. So if I understand the reasons why it's happened and I think those reasons are legitimate and that that horse is um, the, the original price, you know, just say I might have marked it $3 as well, is false and there's new information available that means that the correct price for that horse might be something closer to $10 or whatever, then I will um, reduce my position on that runner. 
alternatively, if I think the market's making a mistake, I'll just keep backing it on the way out. So what are some reasons why it might be false, for example? Are you talking about it just went up way too short, there's a bias, there's you know wind, there's the jockey's not going so well? What, what type of information might sway you? I'm trying to think of a good example of one when that's happened. Um... Is it certain stables that you're happy to happy to follow or follow out is it is it depending on a million factors that just become a a soup that you know in your head and it's hard to explain okay like i've just thought of one so here's a good example so recently there was a race at caulfield and there were two equal favorites in the early market twitchy frank and paris rock they were both around the two to one mark now as the race got closer to jump time um there was a groundswell of support for twitchy frank because the track was it was a, uh, a likely leader and there was um, on-pace runners were sort of dominating the card. The map was slightly tricky for the other runner. Uh, Twitchy Frank was more experienced. It had cities form. There were a number of reasons why the big teams and the bigger players, the, the more the players that have the, uh, the the biggest impact on the market, were being attracted to that horse, and it started to shorten. Right, so it was into. It was at least $2.50. It could have even been shorter from memory. Now, once that happens, something's got to happen with the other runners. Okay, They have to move in relation to each other. Yeah. Okay, so there was a couple of middle pinners in that race. They were um, uh, – there was a first upper called Earth Angel and a Darren Weir runner that was up in distance that were slightly fancied. So their prices weren't budging. So something had to give. And the, the only horse that was left to be a victim in the market was Parish Rock. So it got out to very late in betting, close to $4 on Betfair. Now, I mean, you know, I think at one stage it was probably favourite around the 260 mark on, say, Friday. And here we are going, they're going into the gates and this horse is getting out towards $4. Well, I was happy to keep backing it. Uh, I, in my mind, that was just a pure case of the momentum getting behind Twitchy Frank. There was a map component to it i was already on twitchy frank at a reasonably good price i wasn't worried about it and i, I, I was not one bit concerned about the drift on paris rock it just seemed like an, a, an attractive uh, opportunity to me so uh, that's just that's just an example that, that's the sort of thing that can happen but um, um interesting interesting there, there, there are a lot of other cases where horses drift dramatically and you just know that the horse is not right it's to do with the soundness of the horse so okay. when, when i think when i think it's a, a a case of there's, there's something, there's some stable information that's leaked out and it's Betfair's leading the charge and there's an obvious soundness issue with this horse. I'll be very cautious with them and try and minimise the damage. So for a, just a regular Saturday punter who doesn't do the work you do, is there a general rule that's worth thinking about? Is it, you know, if something goes from $3 to six fifty? in general be cautious or is it is there a general rule at all or is it just you've got to evaluate everything i think the best the closest you can come to a general rule is if they don't have a price as if um you know if there's a layer on betfair that doesn't care what price they're matching on the other side of the bet that's a real red flag and that's both ways like sometimes they're willing to just keep backing a horse no matter what price whatever's up there they'll just take yeah so uh, you know that's less the case it's um it's more prevalent the other way when they're willing to lay a horse at any price that um you know had, had traded at a much shorter price earlier in the market uh that's that's the 
the best thing you'll get to a red flag when there just seems to be no price. But, you know, sometimes it can be people trying to manipulate the market. So I'll give you an example. Last Saturday at Caulfield, um, the opening favourite in the three-year-old Colts race was Villamont at about the $5.50 mark. Ten minutes before jump time, it hit $9 on Betfair and it ran four twenty. So wow. uh, there were there were players that were using Betfair to try and drag out the other corporates and the on-course market to get it out to a point where they wanted to back it. So they were willing to um, expose themselves on Betfair to do that. And then in the last two minutes of backing, the support for that horse was relentless. I mean, it got beat five lengths. It didn't have much luck. It didn't win. But um, that's just the, that's the nature of the game that we're we're engaged in. It's like um, chess on steroids. I like to describe it. <laughs> so, how often are you betting on two, three, four horses a race? Pretty much every race. There are very few races where I only back one horse. It doesn't happen. It happened a handful of times a week, at most. Um, yeah, I. I, I, I tr- I back at least 50% of my market in uh, each race that I um, uh, target. So take us through the rationale for those who think it's, you know, obviously only one horse can win, but take us through that rationale. Are you saying, okay, these three horses have 60% chance of winning the race based on these prices. The market says they've got a, you know, 49% chance, so I'm going to bet all three and I know long-term that's okay. Is that how you think about it? Yep, that's it. That's exactly right. So, and I think the reason I do that is because the more runners I include in my uh, in my bundle on, in, in this race, the less it reduces the margin for error. So it's easy to make a mistake on one horse when you're pricing to 100%. If you you're doing two, three, or four horses, and you're getting to 60% of your market, the the chance of me being far out on my overall percentage on those four horses is it narrows, and obviously, once you get to a hundred, if you if you were to back every horse in the race, well, there's no chance you're making a mistake. Yeah, the, the chance of there being a winner is a hundred percent. So I'm saying, if I put in a lot of work and take into account all the available information I can, and I'm looking at three or four horses in the race, it really does narrow the margin for error, and it makes my results consistent. No, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, I haven't heard it explained in that way, to be honest. But that makes it makes sense if you're, you know, outliers and things like that sort of get meshed into the overall results, I would imagine. Yeah, and to answer one of your questions you asked earlier about do I, how do I react to the market. So there was a race at Sandown last week, just to give an example. The favourite was around the 5 to 2 mark, so $3.50. And uh, the second uh, favourite was around the 4 to 1 mark in the morning line. Okay, now it was a race where that, that those two horses – were hard to price individually, so I, I had them pretty close to the market price. But I was confident that the collective price of the two runners together was accurate. So I'm saying that um, about 48% in those two runners was really close to the mark. Now, as the race got closer, that favourite started to drift and it got out past $5, and the other runner started to shorten. So I was prepared to um, continue to back that the, the runner that shortened which was the horse was called heptagon and the other one was called um uh escapes me now anyway it doesn't matter um i was prepared to back the the the, the heptagon horse on the way down because if there was a problem and it seemed to be a soundless problem with that other horse why it was drifting so badly um the the majority of the percentage that it wasn't taking up had to go to that other runner because it had a clear advantage on the rest of the field so what about when you're bundling them up, like you mentioned, is there a 
preferred bundle? Do you like to have, you know, a leader and then a horse that might sit third or fourth defense, for example? Is that a better bundle than having a leader and a back marker and a someone sitting midfield? Do you think of it in that detail or you just don't care? You put them together based on your price assessment and that's the bundle? Well, effectively, all those factors are taken into account with my prices. But, you know, I'll, if I've walked the track and I think the vast majority of the the uh, run, the winners on that at that meeting are going to come out of the on-pace runners, which I consider to be the first four in run. I, think I will try and back as many of those on-pace runners as I can. Now, if I think the track's really fair and it doesn't really matter and the strongest horses will come to the fore, then I won't be so concerned about, you know, targeting the on-pace runners. So it really depends. So I, I nearly always try and walk the track before I do my first set of prices. So... Because it gives walking the track gives me a lot of clarity on which parts of the field I would prefer to target. I want to get into that track walking part. Before I go to that, on the weekend there was uh, Redzel. Let's say Redzel and Ball of Muscle. Prefer to have those two in your bundle versus you know Supido or Redkirk Warrior who are probably coming from the back. In those instances, is is that a preference because they're both going to be on speed and? You know Red Zell's going to be just outside and hopefully or maybe dictating a little bit to the leader um, or is it always dependent on the track? It's always dependent on a number of different factors. Yeah, it's dependent on a num- number of different factors and you've picked a straight race and the uh, betting off maps in straight races is, can be a very fraught business. Um, now that's a, that's a great example of a race that I didn't bet in, I didn't target because the favourite was too short in my opinion and... Um, the market was the, the rest of the market lined up very neatly with my market, so uh, that, that that that's typical of the sort of race I try to avoid. So that that would be a vi- when you've got a dominant favourite like that, they're hard races to bundle up runners and um, use my method. Yeah, yep. well, because there's five or six around seven, eight, nine, ten to one. Yeah, so you got the, the dominant favourite who I thought was too short. I'd marked it two twenty. It was a dollar eighty. Yeah, and then then the next three picks are all in the eight to ten dollar range, and there's not a lot between them. Uh, so it's just there's no edge there for me. Okay, so let's get into track walking. How did it start out? How do you decide one day, unless you've you know grown up with it, let's say, or you're involved in preparing tracks? How do you get started doing track walking? Well, some of your former guests, Mark Lamborn, used to talk a lot about track patterns and the way diff- tracks raced in different rail positions and so forth, and that got me interested in it you know, several years ago. And then uh, Vince Arcardi, another one of your former guests, you know, would talk about lanes and you know, how they perform. And, and, and now at the time, I wasn't in a position, I was in New South Wales and wasn't geographically placed to um, go and look at the tracks. But uh, about three years ago, I moved to Melbourne, and I was at a, a function with some punters, you know, the first week I was down here. I talked to a guy called Trevor Lawson, and um, Trev has walked all the tracks in Victoria for, for you know, this part of a decade or more, and I just asked him some questions about whether, how you got access and that sort of thing. He said, look, it's, they all encourage it. It's, um, it's not a problem. How do you get on the track? People who have been to the races probably think, oh, they're not going to let me just walk down <laughs> Flemington Strait. How do you get on there? Well, you sort of, um, I, look, when I'm walking them, it's, not the day of the meeting. Okay. I, I sometimes I do go on the day of the meeting for a second look, but like uh, I, I typically try and walk the track on Thursday afternoon, exactly 48 hours before the meeting starts, 
so I can get a good feel of what it's going to be like by race one, you know, or race two or whatever. Yeah. Um, but so so all the, all the tracks in uh, Victoria are accessible to the public, really. So uh, in Caulfield's case, it's Crown Land. It's actually a public park. Um, they only lock it up on race days. Is that right? So, so you get, if you go to Caulfield on any day of the week, there'll be people walking around there with their dogs and that sort of thing, and joggers and all sorts of people. <laughs> so not not so much at the other places, but they're all easy to get into, and the track staff are very welcoming. If you go and introduce yourself, uh, you know I'll become you know very friendly with all the track guys at all the courses. So so if I want to go out on race day and have a look at you know an hour before race one or something like that, I always call the track manager because I've come to know them, and they they don't mind me providing me with access but um yeah so it's, it's something that they they want good uh truthful information to get out there in the marketplace because you know just the nature of punting when something goes wrong for punters the first thing they do is look for who that they who they can blame so it's either the the horse the trainer the jockey or the track so um you know so a lot of misinformation gets you know, spread on social media and that sort of thing so as a way of combating that the, the the track managers actually like really good information to be out there and they get very frustrated with journalists and that sort of thing that, that write comments about the track when they haven't taken the time themselves to have a look at it so is it an art or a science i mean what are you out there looking for i've seen jockeys sometimes out there and i'll get to that in a minute about what they're looking for but they've got looks like umbrellas or some type of stick that they're poking into the ground what what are you doing when you're walking down the straight yeah, I'll look at, uh, I'm not quite sure what the answer is. It's somewhere in the middle of an art and a science. It's, um, I use a scoop hole, but you know, whatever you use, as long as you use the same thing every time. And I, I always go and have a look at some of the recent, where they've raced recently or where they've been working on the track uh, in barrier trials or track work and look at how uh, deeply they're in, the indents are, the markings are on the track. And that's how far I push my pole into the course as I'm assessing it. So I do that, you know, I've developed the right level of pressure um, and I know by how far my pole goes into the ground, uh, you know, as to what, how, how that track will race and rate. So it's just one of those things you get a feel for if you do it over and over and over and over and over again. So, you know, I've, I spend at least um, probably 45 minutes walking the course, some you know, if it's Flemington, it's longer, and if it's Mooney Valley, it's shorter. But so, if if you imagine doing that at least twice, two to three times every week, you just get a feel for it. You you, you can feel where there's firm spots and soft spots, and where some of the uh, course preparation equipment's had an impact on the track. And um, you know, you're looking for anything that's going to provide an advantage of maybe a length over, say, fourteen hundred meters or over a mile or whatever. So it doesn't need to be very much, you know. We're looking racing is about tiny margins, and if you can say right, this these set of circumstances are going to advantage that horse or those horses by a length, that that can make a huge difference to your price. Why isn't every jockey out there doing it? Uh, the, the problem for jockeys, Jake, is that they're just so busy. You know, what I mean, I've worked with some jockeys over the time, and I've tried to talk to them, and it's very hard because they just like so. Like I said, last week I went out to, to Flemington on Thursday and I spent an hour and a half at there. So I walked the, the straight course first and then I did a lap and then did, did the inside of the home straight. And I spent two hours trying to find the, you know, any little advantage that I could and so forth. So while I'm doing that, those jockeys, are, you know, they're riding at Pakenham and they're at Mooney Valley on Friday night. They might have been at Werribee on Friday during the day. 
they're doing track work. I mean, they just they don't have the time to get a prep prepared ahead of time like I do. So they turn up at the races on Saturday, and they've probably only got 15 minutes to go out on the track and have a bit of a look around. And because they don't do it over and over and over again, and they're at so many race meetings, it just doesn't have the same impact on them as it might on me. Now, some of them are better at it than others, but t- as a general rule, the jockeys just tend to follow each other. And I've heard Vince talk about lanes. Are you on board with that approach and that theory? I spoke to someone recently about it. They said even if you found the lane, you can't be guaranteed the horse is going to be there. So in terms of a betting, a forward-looking approach, it's tough. Maybe backward-looking, you can uh, add some sort of value or take away some value from runs. Are you? What are your thoughts on the whole idea of a lane or lanes? Yeah, look, the, the tracks in Victoria are very good. Um the amount of times where there's a you know a real lane advantage is you know it's less likely than likely, but there are times when it is in play. It is very helpful in your post race assessment if you know that it was a lane that was an advantage and you're able to know which horses got the benefit of that on that day. That'll help you you know next time those horses run. That'll provide you with an advantage. Now in the leading up, it can be very tricky. You you might think this horse is uh, going to have the opportunity to go to that position first, but if the jockey's not aware of it, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. So it can be a bit fraught leading into races. Um, I think it's good to have an idea where the advantage might be if there is going to be one and try and back, you know, try to target the horses that have the, the best chance to utilise that opportunity. Um, but it won't always work out for you, but in the post race, it's very valuable. Now, a lot of what Vince has talked about is particularly relevant to Sydney um, and, and a lot with Ramwick over recent years. And what Vince is talking about there with what was originally Lucky Lane 8, it was very relevant. It was extremely important to know where Lane 8 was in, in relationship to the rail. So obviously when the rail true, it was eight lanes out. When it was it rail than six, it was only two lanes out. You had to know where that lane was. And they've done things recently, I think, to, to try and alleviate that, that issue. But um, I don't bet in Sydney anymore, so I'm not really sure where that currently stands. But in Victoria, the tracks are, are generally very good. So I want to talk about how you do the form in a sec. But before we do, why didn't you stay in Sydney? Was it a racing issue or a betting issue or was it just circumstance and, and other issues? Yeah, well, I, um, there were a number of issues. But, you know, from a racing point of view... I'd started in Sydney. I'd been exclusively there for four, at least four seasons. I'd, at the time, sort of, um, I lose track of my time, but I'm thinking about this. I was discussing it with the boys on the racing round the other day, and I, I couldn't remember exactly which year at all when the transition exactly happened. But um, so for the first four years, at least, of betting professionally, it was in Sydney exclusively. The only times I'd been in Melbourne were during the spring carnival. And uh, one of those spring carnivals, I just thought, wow, the racing's just different down there. I'm going to extend it out this year. And I, I, I kept doing form in Melbourne for a further three months and found it to be very um, – the opportunities for my type of betting were richer in Victoria. Um, so I'd, for a period there, I did both. Uh, then uh, with the dominance of the uh, – particularly the Chris Wallace stable, but the top stables in Sydney, it was just getting tighter and tighter up there and the, there's a bigger there's a much bigger gap in, in New South Wales between the provincials and the metro horses uh, in Victoria the structure's a lot flatter and um, 
that leads to more opportunity and greater depth in the fields and greater depth in the betting market. So I, I got to the point where I was much more focused on Victorian racing and I'd sold some property in Sydney. I had an opportunity to move. So my wife and I put, packed everything. We, we sold most of everything we owned and what was left we put in the car with our uh, two old English sheepdogs and we came to Victoria. That's really interesting. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So let's talk about doing the form. Are you are you watching videos? Are you pencil and paper and going through the numbers? Do you have a supercomputer that crunches everything? Take us through without going into too much detail or any proprietary information, but what are your general thoughts and approach to doing the form? Okay, well, it's Monday today, so I'll start from there. So Monday at the moment is race three Monday, Victoria, which is just wonderful. Wow. So today, so today I'll review all of the meetings. I've already done a number of them, but the, the meetings that I haven't already reviewed that happened in the last seven days in Victoria I'll review today. So I start with the times and then I'll do the videos and then I'll focus more. If it's at the, the further out wide or the lower stand of the meeting, I'll, the less that will be, I'm, I might – not look at all the. I mean, I look at all the videos to see where the winner was in run because I want to um, use that as an assessment for whether there was any track bias. But um, you know, in terms of in-depth study of the video and which runners were unlucky and that sort of thing, I'll only do that on the fast races out wide. And as I get closer into Victoria and the more the stronger meetings, I'll get deeper and deeper into that analysis. So by the time I've I've done that, usually by the time I've looked at every race in Victoria for the week some jump outs and maybe a couple of interstate races. I usually review about 100 races a week with a lot of that work happening on Monday. Okay, then I'll start looking at the Wednesday meeting and you know, sometimes I bet I'll find a race to target on Tuesday as well so that I might look at one or two races on Tuesday but I'm getting prepared for the, the Wednesday meeting which this week's at Caulfield so I'll get all the fields in front of me and barrier draw order start to do the speed maps for the, for the whole meeting and then before I start before I get anything beyond the speed maps, I'll go out and walk the uh, the track. So I'll either do that this afternoon or tomorrow afternoon at Caulfield. Um, you know, so as an example, we've got two meetings this weekend, this week at Caulfield, Wednesday and Saturday. On Wednesday, the rail will be at 14 metres, and on Saturday, it'll be back into the true. So it might as well be two different race courses. It's so different. So going out and walking the track tomorrow, even if I don't find any particular lanes or advantage, it'll just put me in the right mindset and it'll give me some clarity for when I start nailing down the numbers for those um, horses which lead to my prices. So so once I've got the speed button in front of me, I've walked the track, I'll start to look at the, the platforms that those horses have got coming into each race and put – I have a, a scale of performance that I use. Um, that's – you know, it's not com- it's not in line with the official handicap ratings, but it's, it, it's in the same – um, universe, if you like, but it's just a lot more compressed. Okay. And um, and I think in lengths, you know, so two points to a length, and you know, so if if on my scale a horse last start performance is ninety, and it's meeting horses in the next race that's a hundred, it's got five, it needs to find five lengths to be competitive with those horses, if that makes sense, right? So in like the group one horses are. are performing at a level of 110 above so that's you know there's 
very few horses that get to that level on on my scale. The majority of metropolitan Saturday races, if you like, are one in the hundred to one hundred and five range, and the majority of midweek um, metro races are one in the sort of ninety four to ninety nine range. Some get to one hundred, and a lot of the provincial races are running the sort of one in the um, eighty six to ninety four range, if you like. So. Um, you know, I have I when I say I review all those races in Victoria, each race has that rating for the winner, and then works back in lengths from that winner for every runner. So I've got what performance they produced at their most recent run, and all of the historical runs, and plus I'll have my my benchmark figure that I expected from them in that race if it was a race that I uh, previewed. So I'm I'm looking at what what I expect from that runner. As I said, I start with the favourite because I've done it for so long, Jake. I could, when I look at a field and I say, just say the top-rated runner I've got to, on my scale at 100, and the second pick's 96, and it's got a two-length margin, I'll go okay. I'll just I just know straight away what a six to four chance looks like and what a four to one chance looks like, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. So I, yep. I, I start with the favourite. Go right. That's where you sit, and then I work back in lengths from that to price every runner. And then, as I said, at, at the end, I just fine-tune it a little bit to get it to 100%. Okay. And then what about, and, you know, speed maps and all that sort of stuff? Is that what's coming next? So, no, I did, speed map was first. So, if we're talking about me doing race one at Caulfield on Wednesday, I'll do the speed map today. Yeah. I'll walk, walk the track this afternoon. Then I'll start putting, look at, I'll use my database with my scale of performances on it. I'll start to look, put the ratings beside each horse and I'll adjust them slightly depending on the tempo of this race and that, that horse's position and what it's a, about to achieve, what it can achieve. So it might have produced 96 of its last run, and I think all the conditions here, it's got a good position, it can get to 98 here. So I'll put 98 in the thing. And like I said, if the if the top pick in the race is 100, that means I've got it one length off the, off the top pick. Yep. So, so speed map first. Then get a picture of how I think the track's going to play. So as I'm doing my expected performances, I'm looking at the tempo and where that horse is positioned and where it's positioned in relation to the top-rated runner in the race. That's something I always take note of. And I'm getting those numbers, trying to get them solid before I start. Pro- then I, the last thing I do is the pricing. It's the last piece of the puzzle. So you have all the information on paper and in your head, and then you go and, and finalize the price assessment. Exactly. So I have the computer in front of me, but as you're talking about, I've got a piece of paper in front of me. I have a big pad that I have one pad per month that regular viewers of my uh, YouTube show uh, will see. I always have that pad in front of me. So the results are all in the back and the previewed races are in the front of that pad. And I do that to, to try and help paint a mental picture of the race for myself leading into the race. I'd like to just have this mental picture of how this race is going to be run, where the runners all fit and 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 so forth. So, the, the, and one of the, I mean, I, I do that for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of the real value parts of that that uh, people might not expect is when I see support for a runner in the market that I might not have backed, I instantly think, why are they back? Like my, my, the picture I've formed for this race in my head will give me clues as to why they're backing that horse. And it, almost in a subconscious way will trigger in me, yes, I need to cover myself on this horse and make sure I don't lose if it wins, whether I need to build a position on that horse and make it a winner for me, or whether 
no, they're making a mistake backing this horse. I'm happy to let that horse go around against me. So sometimes something will just click based on seeing the market move or changes and then you'll look at what you've done and think, oh, I missed that or overlooked that or haven't priced it in enough? Exactly. So I think the mental picture I paint for each race going into it, when the market starts to move in certain directions, it always triggers something in, in, in my subconscious that sort of helped me use my instinct to decide whether I, I, I've made a mistake, the market's making a mistake, which direction I need to go in. That uh, just thinking about pre two thousand and eight and probably the fun you had betting carnival time doing twenty minutes of form and now what it's evolved into sort of ten years later it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, oh, look, I, I I get I feel grateful every every week and every day I get up and this is I get this is what I get to do because uh, I just I enjoy every week. Um, I'm sure that comes through to uh, the, the the punters that get my um, services and. Um, the ones that watch the stuff on YouTube and so forth, that I'm sure it's very evident that um, I really enjoy everything about racing. I enjoy the puzzle that it is and, as I said, chess on steroids and thinking about it and the mental challenge that it is. It's exciting. So what about on a Saturday then? Once you've done all that and it's, you know, 1 o'clock, is it fun then on Saturday? Are you just have four or five screens open and and placing some bets and, and playing, you know, real-time chess or is it still a analytical detailed approach during your Saturday and you've got to be mentally switched on for six hours in a row and then once it hits sort of 5.30 you can sort of switch off yeah it's um, yeah I don't know if, I really really enjoy it uh, I find it rewarding and challenging but I don't know if it's fun because it will dra- like a, a day a race meeting will drag you in all sorts of places that you didn't expect to be dragged to and I think things will happen that you just don't expect um, because it's just a, uh, it's an intriguing game full of all sorts of characters and, um, you know, it's very competitive and people do what they have to do to win. So, you know, you've got to be open to the possibilities. Um, you know, from, I've start like, so I've start for a Saturday meeting, I've started doing the work usually on a Wednesday. I've done more work on Thursday, additional work on Friday. Usually by about lunchtime on Friday, I've sent some information. I've, I've completed my pre pre meeting preparation, if you like, you know, pre race day preparation, and my the information's gone out to my um, subscribers by about lunchtime on um, Friday, and then um, you know it's usually a Friday night meeting that we're involved a little bit in or whatever, and I won't think about it again until Saturday morning after scratchings because the scratchings can have a significant impact on the card. But I'll have done some betting. I've started to build positions in certain races. And then on Saturday, it's really about rounding out those positions and then reacting a little bit to what's happening in the market. But I mean, my whole approach is to try and stay as much as I can at least one step ahead of the market if possible. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. That's where my edge is. And I'm working extremely hard to try and stay and anticipate what direction the market's going to go in and what's going to trigger certain moves in the market and anticipating those you know that, that creates the edge so this is a serious question how do you have a week off uh the, the only w- full week off i have all year is the week of the warnable carnival um it's just yeah I, I find it if i have a, a, a two or a three week off somewhere on the line uh, it's so hard to catch up um 
just doing the way I do things. It's, it would take it could if you have, if I took a month off, it would take me probably at least a month to catch back up. If that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I just I enjoy doing what I do so so much that I haven't I, I don't mind. It doesn't worry me when I, I um there are a lot that's the 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 downfall of um my chosen profession is that I don't get to take big chunks of time off, but on a week to week basis I have a I think I have a very enjoyable lifestyle because while I work really hard, I'm working really hard at something that I thoroughly enjoy. So uh, as opposed to running a recruitment business, um, I, I mean, I'd never want to go back to running a recruitment business, I can assure you. <laughs> you mentioned about the sort of the Saturday part where you're taking positions, trying to stay ahead of the market, uh, even predicting, I guess, moves. Is that betting component, which is, I would say, completely different to doing the form, is that a completely different skill set that you need to manage um, and, I guess, enhance as you continue to do this? Absolutely. It's a completely different component. And there are people that are very good analysts that are no good at betting. And there are people that are very good at betting and aren't very good analysts. So, you know, that that's how different the skill sets are. Um, I, I think my analytical skills are probably better than my betting skills. But over the years, my betting skills have just improved and improved. And I can tell the difference when I'm, when I'm punting really well. You know, I can I can improve the results of my sets, for instance, by some very clever you know, moves that you make that just you know anticipating where the market's heading. Yep. So, so my set might have been plus twenty on the day, and I might have made thirty units. You know what I mean? Yep. That just yep. it makes a very big difference at the end of the year. Or all the days where the the set might lose twenty five units, and you only lose five because you've you know you've covered a few extra bases or something. So, um, and when I say the set, I mean I have a pre-race, ble- a pre-meeting betting plan, which I think is a key component p- component of what I do. So, um, uh, I think you have to have a foundation for what you're doing on that day. Then you can build changes on top of it, and, th- and those changes are only minor. But if you go into a race meeting without some kind of a plan, I mean you just it's just too tough, in my opinion. Um, the marketplace is brutal, and if you put yourself in a position to be dragged from one place to another by emotion, the market will destroy you. So this might be a strange question, but can you be out of form from a sporting perspective, an athlete's perspective? Can you be out of form doing the form? And I don't mean necessarily... You know, just variance in terms of results. But is there times where you think, yeah, I'm just not doing this well at the moment for whatever reason, or I just it's not clicking right now? Is that something that you can understand and manage, or is it just this is the process, follow the process, and all that variance or not doing it as well today and doing it a little bit better tomorrow will take care of itself? You've been asking great questions, Jake, because in in, in most of your questions, you've given alternatives that are both true. So, um, I'm just it, making them up and yeah. trying to figure out in my head if it's a stupid question or not half the time. So, that's a good question. No, the form's definitely a part of it. There are times when you are, it's just working. The, the form goes in cycles. Okay, so there are parts of the form cycle that are easier to deal with than others. And you can only understand that and be aware of it 
if you've done it over and over and over again over a series of years. And, you know, over time I um, have become more aware of parts of the form cycle to be less aggressive in. I, I never I – don't, I don't think you can predict it to a point where you can say, okay, this part of the form cycle I'm going to not bet in and I'll wait till it comes uh, – till it gets to a point where – it's more reliable and I'll start betting again. I don't think you can do that. Um, I've had it suggested to me by a lot of people that I've discussed it with, but I, do, I just think it's a mistake. But um, so – Would you pull I back think, though or would you – Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. like it's it's just – so I bet a proportional Kelly stake and I allocate that to a race. And it's sort of I, – I work in a range and when – I mean, a difficult part of the form cycle. When I say the form cycle, I'm talking about the, the, the because we cause racing so seasonal in Australia, and you have these crossover periods where you'll have, say, when you're running from winter into spring, and then spring into summer, and then right right now as we speak, we're in that period, the crossover period between, you know, the summer horses and the horses that are, you know, early in their campaigns from an autumn point of view. And I'm saying right now the, the uh, the last couple of weeks, they're, they're a difficult. It's a difficult period to deal with, so I'll be at the conservative end of the allocation uh, of the you know, proportional Kelly allocation for each race. I'll be now as the form starts to develop over the next few weeks, it, it'll become apparent to me at a point where I can start to move up towards the more aggressive end of that scale. So I'm, 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 it's hard for me to talk about it in really black and white terms because it's something that happens progressively. But um, because of the way those form cycles work, it can make you feel like you're, you know, in the, in the, the term you use, you're out of form. Or at, you know, at other times when, th- when things are running really good for you, you can feel like you're really in form. Now, I there was something that I heard on one of your previous podcasts that you did with Dominic Byrne that really interested me, and it, I, I've sort of adopted it because I was doing something like it, but it wasn't exactly. And Dominic Byrne mentioned on the days where his computer is going, he's running really well, and it just seems like the circumstances are suiting that day. So, you know, in, in the term you used, his form's good that day. He has a second bank that then he utilizes on that day to increase the, his level of commitment on that day to take advantage of days when his form's good. Now, I think that's a really interesting concept and that's something that I've tried to uh, fold into what I do to an extent anyway. Yeah, it's, it is an interesting one. A lot of people who are purely analytical or focused on the, the mathematics might say that it may not be the best approach. I'm not sure. I'd have to think about it as well, but it's an interesting idea and concept and basically factoring in things you can't quantify or understand is something that human beings struggle with in general so if that's what it is and you're trying to factor in something that you just can't quantify or understand but you know it's there is a very interesting topic that would need a lot of research and understanding but it's it's worth talking about i would imagine yeah well i'm talking very specifically about racing and i'm saying it's seasonal and it goes through cycles so i'm saying that's a component of racing that I've got no idea if it's applicable to other betting mediums. I wouldn't know how that applies to sport or anything else. I just know it's a factor in racing. And the key component there 
that I didn't get to in my previous answer and you were touching on is you have to have an extremely robust process. So when things get tough, you've got something to fall back on that allows you to just put emotion to the side and you just go back to the process and go, right, step one's doing the speed map. Step two is understanding what the track pattern is likely to be on the day. The next step is looking at the platforms the various horses have got and what they're likely to be able to achieve in this race and then price it. So the, all of those steps, they just never change. I do that exact process for every race, every time, no matter what the f- part of the form cycle is. I just go through the same process. So when I'm in inverted commas out of form, it, it just gives me something to form back on where I'm not but trying to pull myself in, apart and in all sorts of directions and whatever else. And then I just look at the prices at the end of the day and they'll tell me whether I can bet or whether I can't bet in that race. Yep. No, and, and in racing specifically – you might lose a few short half head or nose finishes and you might be doing fine or great and you're just not getting the results and they will balance out eventually, I'm sure. Absolutely. Oh, that, that's that's a key component of it. Like I often, you know, I communicate a lot with my subscribers and I say to them a lot, like, you know, if we're, we're missing out on a few photos but we're in the finishes. The important part is that we're collecting regularly. Like my whole process, I set up back uh, 50% or more of my market in every race, which means in theory I, if I'm – if my markets are reasonably accurate, I should be col- collecting in more than 50% of the races I'm betting in. So we're collecting regularly. We're in a lot of finishes. W- where we need to worry is if we're backing horses regularly that are just not in play at all. That's um, If that happens, then I need to just take a step back and look at what I've done over that you know, period and um, just see if anything needs tweaking. But, um, you know... My whole approach, I've got things, some things written down on my desk that I, that I try and stick to every day, and that's first of all, I've got to know, I've, I have to know where the edge is, I have to stay sharp, I have to stay mean, which means staying mean's a, a really important aspect for for punters that are new to it. That you don't, one of the times you're at your most finals when you're running really good and things are going your way, that's the time you never want to give any money back to the market easily. You want to make sure that you. Every bet you have is a bet that counts and there's an edge in it. And uh, be patient. And I, I also try to remind myself to use my natural instinct. You see the numbers. You want more control. On the Betfair Exchange, you can back, lay, trade and set your own odds. So join the world's largest peer-to-peer betting platform. Get into the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So how hard is the running the business part? And I had a look on your side and you mentioned something which I rarely see and it was achievable prices. And, and most people here in the US, gambling Twitter in general in the US is, um, let's say, not always the nicest place in the world to be. But a lot of it is about, you know, releasing prices at the wrong time or saying it was available when it was available for three or four minutes and, and those type of things. So seeing achievable prices was actually pretty refreshing. How hard is it to manage a business while doing all of the things we've already discussed? And was that something you, I guess, factored in and anticipated? Or has it been more than you anticipated? Um, well, look, I uh, operated as a professional punter in the background quietly. No one knew who I was for several years before I ever considered having a subscriber-type product, uh, a guy called Dallas Baker talked me into, or not talked me into it, but you know, encouraged me to do that um, probably three or four years ago now. Um, so the important part was, Jake, is when, when I started doing it, 
I knew that it was going to win. You have to have if you if you to me if you're going to provide information to a subscriber base, you and you don't know what's going to win, it's almost certain to lose. Okay, because the whatever emotional roller coaster you might have doing you just your own betting, that will be magnified dramatically if you're providing that information to other people and you're costing them money. So by the time I the first time I ever offered anything publicly, it in my mind was extremely robust and I had all the tools to fall back on if things got tough. And of course, uh, when I first offered the the set, the first four weeks it lost, of course, that's what always happens. <laughs> and <laughs> um, and I said to Dallas at the time, look, don't, you know, I think we, we went the first week, we might have had 20 customers and by the week four, we had three left. And I said, just don't, don't say a word, just let it go along and wait till we've got something to talk about before we ever talk about it again. And I think I won 12 of the next 14 meetings and had a huge spring carnival. And halfway along that, um, at the time, Robbie Waterhouse was providing a service through the, through the Punish Show, the same as I was. And uh, one of the stewards in Sydney decided he wasn't going to allow Robbie to do that anymore because he was a licensed bookmaker. And uh, as it turned out, a lot of Robbie's customers come over to my service and we won like a, a, a high percentage of the weeks over that spring carnival. So... Uh, I've never looked back since then, and um, you know my customers have done well. Now, the, the problem with this day and age, Jake, with the, the way social media is and the internet these days, any anyone can offer something these days, and they can make all sorts of outrageous claims. And unfortunately for some of these people, they haven't learned how to win properly themselves before they've offered it to other people, and they're trying to learn on the run. Which I can't, you know, the, the, the difficulty of doing that, I can't even imagine how difficult that would be. You really have to do it in your own space and time and make sure that you completely know what you're doing before you offer to anyone else publicly. Otherwise, you're, you're just asking for failure, I, I would say. Yeah, and it sounds very stressful doing that, but obviously that's what happens too much on social media and I guess that's why you need to you know, do your research before you're throwing money away and signing up for those free tipping services or 10 bucks a day and, and things like that if you're not completely sure it's it's what you need uh, just to probably answer your question thoroughly like in my case i want to make sure that the results that i report on my results page mirror the the experience of the customers so um the prices i put up are the prices that they would have been able to achieve given when the information was available to them and what the market did so um you know and i, I see it as a uh, a virtue that often the subscribers will, will have done better than the results I report. I yeah. think that that you know that means that they've done a really good job with the punning side of it that we were discussing uh, earlier, and uh, good on them if they have. If they've taken that information and improved the result by, with some clever punting, um, you know they, they should feel good about that. No doubt, and at least it's like you mentioned, it's achievable. They've got an opportunity to achieve those results and. Um, and that's all you can really ask. Obviously, you see, you know, NFL games where it's minus six and a half for five seconds, and it's it's minus seven or closes minus seven or minus seven and a half, and they put out minus six and a half, and it's just not ideal in many respects. But yeah, it was refreshing when I read it that way because it, it certainly gives them the opportunity to be successful at those prices. Yep, absolutely. So I'm cognizant of your time, Darren. I really appreciate it. One more thing before I let you go. What type of content do you consume? Do you 
listen to podcasts? Do you listen to the radio, RSN, or things like that? Do you watch TV shows about racing? How do you, you mentioned a few things before about staying sharp? Are there things you would suggest for others who are, you know, spending a lot of time doing this and might be looking for different outlets? What's some of the the best places or places they can find some things to help their punting? Um, well, sadly, mainstream media these days is a bit. Um it's information lacking substance for the most part. Uh, so I, I look for the more niche stuff. The Business of Betting podcast, great place to start. And I would say to people that are going to try and bet for a living, the first podcast they should listen to is the one you did with the guy from the uh, investment bank that talked about the um, Kelly betting experiment that he ran. Yeah, Victor. Yeah, that was fascinating. Victor. If you, you, if you want to bet for a living, you need to understand those concepts. Now, you, you'll have your, you can have your own version of them, but you need to understand betting to the edge. And anyone that wants to bet for a living and make a go of it would need to be able to do that experiment and achieve the maximum payout that, that, that they were offering because as long as you manage your bank sensibly in that process, you will get to the achievable result. If you overbet the edge, you will go broke. And if you bet tails when the toss is rigged against you, you will go broke. So, yeah, it, we laugh about it, but it's it's not that standard across the board. Yeah, well, the, the two key things that punters need to understand is not overbetting your edge, and not betting when the edge is you know when you don't when you haven't identified an edge. So in in that case, the people were being told that the toss was rigged towards heads. And uh, some still wanted the back tails. So um, you'd need to beat that out of yourself before you ever tried to make a living out of um, punting. Um, I read I read books. You know, I try and – I mean, the, the um, amount of uh, – well, the number of good books on punting is fairly limited. It's a very limited space. But some that come to the top of my head was the uh, one on Pat, Pat, one that Patrick Veach wrote. I think it's called Emily in- – Enemy number one. Yep, uh, that's a that's a really good read. That for people that particularly are into horse racing and trying to get an edge there. That Patrick goes through in some detail his process. Um, you know, looking back in time over how he, he won a lot of money off the corporates in England, and I think that's there's some value there. I enjoyed reading uh, after you had um, uh, what's his name the, the UK uh, Harry Finlay uh, on your podcast. I got hold of his book and had a read of that. That was entertaining. But uh, Harry's a, what an intriguing character he is and uh, full of good insights. Definitely. Um, yeah. um, so th- those type of books, I'm always I- interested in that type of thing. I uh, w- you know, I was an avid viewer in, of The Punisher back in, in, in those days, back in 2010, 11 and 12 and 13. But since I've, um, that's become the racing rant these days and, because I'm so Victorian centric these days, and they're, they're Sydney, it's not. It's become less useful to me personally. But yep. for people, people that are betting in, in the Australian market, you know, that, watching what the guys produce there is of great value. Uh, there's shows like mine. There are other ones out there. There's just um, the more the more niche stuff that's available on, you know, either YouTube or podcasts and stuff like that. There's just some really good some good information out there. Have you read A Man for All Markets? I haven't. No, who wrote that? I wrote that down. Edward Thorpe. That's um, oh, highly, right, yeah, highly yeah. recommended. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've read a bit about Thorpe because I've uh, one of the first books I read, particularly on the Kelly criteria, was um, 
Um, Fortune's Formula, for, maybe? Fortune's, yeah, Fortune's Formula by yep. William Poundstone. And that's a really good examination of the the history and the principles behind Kelly, and I really enjoyed that. So, yeah, I'll, I'll have a look at Thorpe's book for sure. Yeah, it's a very, very good book. Before I let you go, Darren, tell us about your site, and, and you mentioned the videos as well. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what you're offering and how, if, if anyone's interested in what you're or what we discussed today on the on the podcast, they can uh, reach out to you, send an email, or what the best way to do that for them is. Yeah, well, look, Jake, I'd, I'd just be really straight up and honest with people here. From As they might have picked up with here, the number one thing for me here is my own betting. I'm my own number one customer, if that makes sense. Yep. And the, the only way I'm going to be of any use to any of my um, customers is if I win myself. If I'm not winning, it's no good to them. So I've never tried to push the subscription business to, to any great extent. I like it being small and I like the group of customers I've got. They're the right type of customers, ones that understand punning, are willing to ride the ups and downs, and they, they, once they find me, they tend to stay. Uh, so that's the way I like it. So I've never made any attempts to really push my website. That's why people probably would not have heard of me or not um, seen my stuff uh, previously so it's just Darren Potter race assessments there's not a lot of information on there the page that gets by far the most traffic is the results that gets the results page gets updated daily um, and I've got a YouTube channel in the same name just Darren Potter race assessments so I mean they're the really doing the show each week is just a release for me and some of the other professional punters around Melbourne we get together and just talk about issues related to racing and what's been happening and how we've been going and um, just you know which which stables are hot at the moment which ones aren't what you know just various trends and that type of thing we tend to try and do it on Monday because that's the quietest day for for all of us and um, most weeks we get to do it and this week I won't be doing it because I'm doing uh, the business of betting with Jake Williams instead there you go great option this week Darren <laughs> that's it <laughs> I really do appreciate your time it's it's always fun to to speak to the pros I obviously don't live in Australia anymore so this is one of my, I guess, releases, as you said, is getting to speak to the, the best out there about what they're doing, and um, it certainly helps. So I, I really appreciate your time, uh, and, and thanks again for coming on the show. Well, next time you're betting in any Australian racing, Jake, whether it's from the US or you're back in Australia and for the spring carnival or something, make sure you contact me, mate. I'll provide you one of my sets free of charge, and uh, hopefully it'll help you uh, get something out of those boogies. You're a good man, Darren. You're a very good man. I appreciate it. Good on you, Jake. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.